I hear those things are awfully loud. It glides as softly as a cloud. Is there a chance the truck could bend? Not on your life, my Hindu friend. What about us Brendan slobs? You'll be given cushy jobs. Were you sent here by the devil? No, good sir, I'm on the level. The ring came off my pudding can. Take my penknife, my good man. I swear it's Springfield's only choice. Throw up your hands and raise your voice. What's it called? Once again. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Stephen King Cast, one man's musings on the works of Stephen King. Each week, I'll review one entry in the bibliography of Stephen King in the chronological order of publication. And with this week, I boarded a train that took me back to Midworld to rejoin the rest of my quartet in Stephen King's third entry in the long-running Dark Tower series, The Wastelands. When it comes to the Dark Tower entries, when you ask a tower junkie what their favorite is, I think most people will respond with The Wastelands. As I type this, I might have to agree, though Wizarding Glass might edge it out, but still, I can see why this is everyone's favorite. This is King writing at peak King. At this point, he's battled his inner demons and has begun his stretch of sobriety, which opens up new doors of creativity previously unseen. More importantly, with the gunslinger functioning as the origin story for Roland, and Jake, and the drawing of the three functioning as an origin story for Eddie and Susanna, King doesn't have to spend time establishing his characters. He can simply let his previously established characters go wild. With this one, he's able to take the brakes off and let this cart go careening down the tracks. Furthermore, this is the novel where the promise of what these stories could be come true. The world building is on point, and it's here where King introduces us to the central concepts that have come to define the series, such as the beams, the guardians, the rose, and the image of the tower standing in a field of roses. This entry pulls the edges of this world, revealing that it's crazier and more lived in than we had previously thought. Whereas with the gunslinger, King had focused on the western tropes. Now here he goes crazy sci-fi. He had given us glimpses of an ancient futuristic world beneath the mountains in The Gunslinger, but that had really been all that we had seen so far. In the drawing of the three, all we're given of Roland's world was a long stretch of beach with magic doorways and talking lobsters. Now we realize that there's more to this world than deserts, doors, magicians, and lobsters. Here, King, maybe with one foot still in the post-apocalypse of The Stand, presents us with the technological ruin of a previously unseen civilization. A civilization that included giant robotic bears and talking now crazy trains that traveled between universes. We get a clearer picture of Roland's world. Long ago, society had reached its zenith and imploded, and from its ashes sprung the next civilization that would eventually include Gilead and the world that we know. For as long as Roland's civilization had existed, it had been built around the tombstones of a greater one that had been left to decay. But it isn't any futuristic society. Like I said, it's one that built recreations of the mythological guardians to protect invisible beams in the sky. Whatever this society was, it was one that had fully acknowledged the tower and used whatever was at its disposal to guard it. That would be like if we built giant robot replicas of Zeus and Poseidon and the others to protect Mount Olympus. So it isn't just a futuristic society. King grasps the spiritual with the practical, confirming the existence of the tower as a once accepted part of everyday life. Look, 
Not only do we get to explore the ruins of this civilization with the encounter with Shardik, Lud, and Blaine, but we also get time travel paradoxes, haunted houses, evil corporations, demons, and pirates. And the introduction to everyone's favorite member of the Cotet, our very own Billy Bumbler, Oi. Like I said earlier, this novel feels as though the promise of the potential of what these books could be is fulfilled. The characters interact with each other like a well-oiled machine. The world in which they exist feels weirder, more dangerous, and more diverse than it had ever been before. He fleshes it out with Aunt Talitha, who gives the reader a greater understanding of the role that the gunslingers had played in this world. Until now, the role of the gunslingers and their importance had been conveyed to the reader through Roland. Now, this is also the man who let a ten-year-old boy die in order to reach the tower, so it wasn't as if he was the most trustworthy narrator. But with Aunt Talitha, we see the religious wonder and the gratitude to Roland um, due to his function within his world, which shows that the gunslingers had always been more than just police in this world. They had been knights, a little bit Arthurian knight, a little bit Jedi. From a forest to 1970s New York, to a small village, to a crumbling futuristic city aboard a sentient monorail, through the tidal wastelands, this novel takes us places, and it's the first novel that ends with a nail-biting cliffhanger, with the Ka-Tet finally complete, giving Roland to interact fully with other people and begin to thaw after decades of solitude, his redemption arc begins with the unexpected return of Jake Chambers, which allows this story to directly build off the events of not just the drawing of the three, but of the gunslinger as well. What I'm trying to say is, this book is an incredibly high high, and I don't know if King manages to reach this height again. Now, like I said, I love Wizarding Glass, but that isn't a novel that propels the story forward the way the previous three had done, and the remaining three after it will. It gives us an incredible world and character building, but only in service to the characters, never the plot, and for people looking for Roland to get closer to the tower, Wizarding Glass feels like a disappointment. Wizarding Glass will be the last Dark Tower novel before King's 1999 near-death experience when he was hit by a van. The final three novels, The Wolves of the Kala, Song of Susanna, and The Dark Tower, come from a man who was profoundly changed and read like an entire piece on their own, but whose trajectory fundamentally altered by the real-world car accident. Had King never suffered that injury? Whatever we would have gotten for an ending would have been drastically different because, spoilers on, spoilers on, seriously, if you have not read any of the Dark Tower books from this point forward, you do not want to listen for the next 15 seconds or so. What happens in the next series of books after Wizard and Glass, King works both himself and the accident into the novel. He becomes a central character, and Roland's primary goal of reaching the tower is replaced with having to save Stephen King. It's an incredibly divisive decision, to say the least, and one that I couldn't fully get behind during my first reading. That isn't to say that it doesn't work, because it does. Quite well, actually. And to have Roland be King's twinner is an incredible way for the author to explain his real-life addiction, because on some level, he shared aspects of the same soul of the universe's most important junkie, the last gunslinger, whose every move is in service to the ultimate score standing in a field of roses. 
1991, when this was first released, and readers were given this quartet with the new rules, the beams and the rows, there was no way anyone would guess that the ending would include the author himself. So for many Dark Tower fans, this is the best Dark Tower novel because it fulfills the potential established in the first two novels and presents the possibilities of potential that are never fulfilled because of a real-world car crash. Anyway, I'll get to the final novels in due time, but while we're still in the here and now, let's jump through this magic door together and step back into this wacky world of talking raccoons, robotic bears, street pirates, and public transportation systems doing their best Frank Gorshin imitation. But first, I'd like to read a listener email. Wes writes, Hi, still loving the podcast. I started listening to the Cycle of the Werewolf one, and right before I hit play, I thought to myself that it would probably open with Werewolves of London. But as I started listen, you played Blue Moon, I thought that you found an even better song to open the podcast, but that Werewolves of London would have been a close second. Of course, as you started reading the synopsis, what song kicks in? I'm glad I was alone when I heard that part because I started laughing my ass off. Keep up the good work, Wes. Thanks, Wes. Um, again, I've said on, on other episodes, I just really love doing the, the musical parts to the, the show. I think that it really gives it that, that extra edge into, into making it something special. So I'm glad that you guys are enjoying it as much as I am. And Jerry writes, Just finished your Oleus podcast, and I must say I love the actual breakthrough you have while talking. It's so real, and I was saying, OMG, I'm hearing him talk himself into the RF scenario. And two minutes later, you point out that you're having an epiphany. Um, so what uh, Jerry's writing, I believe it's in the Eyes of the Dragon bonus review. So what I have, one thing that you can trace throughout the course of these episodes that I have done is really explore the concept of Randall Flagg and what Randall Flagg has meant to the, the Stephen King universe. And um, I've had issues with it. And in the bonus review of Eyes of the Dragon, I kind of came to terms with it. So that, that's what he's referring to there. Anyway, he continues, A little mad at you for spoiler alerting me so late on Needful Things. I literally only have a handful of pages left in it. Couldn't shut my phone off fast enough, haha. Not really upset, spoilers don't bother me sometimes. It enriches the experience, so I'm not rushed to get to the end. I can enjoy the process. Keep up the amazing work, and I hope more and more people keep tuning in. I'm going to start reading Joe Hill's Heart-Shaped Box next before King releases another book, LOL. So thanks, Jerry. Um, and now that you've uh, kind of opened the door, I would like others to, uh, to listen as much as possible as well. So if everyone, if you have not done so, please head on over to iTunes, even if you're listening through Podbean or another venue, uh, if you were to subscribe to iTunes and write a review, it would really help get the message of the Stephen King cast out a lot. So that would be a huge help to me, everybody. And for everyone that has done so already, thank you so much. And now I'll jump into the Wikipedia summary so I'll have a basis upon which I can build my analysis. The story begins five weeks after the end of the drawing of the three. Roland, Susanna, and Eddie have moved east from the shore of the Western Sea and into the woods of Outworld. After an encounter with the gigantic cyborg bear named Shardik, they discover one of the six mystical beams that hold the world together. The three gunslingers follow the path of the beam inland to Midworld. 
Roland now reveals to his Ka-Tet that his mind has become divided by the paradox of having let Jake Chambers die under the mountains after finding him at the way station in the desert, and yet also, after having subsequently prevented Jake's earlier death in New York City, having an alternate memory of traveling through the desert and mountains alone. Meanwhile, in 1977 New York, Jake Chambers is experiencing exactly the same crippling mental divide which is causing alarm at his private school and angering Jake's cocaine-abusing father. Roland burns Walter's jawbone, and the key to his and Jake's dilemma is revealed, but to Eddie Dean, not to Roland. Eddie must carve a key that will open the door to New York in 1977. Jake, in schizophrenic panic, abruptly leaves school. After purchasing a children's book called Charlie the Choo Choo at a used bookshop, Jake finds a key in a littered vacant lot where grows a single red rose. Jake is able to pass into Roland's world using the key to open a door in an abandoned haunted house on Dutch Hill in his place and time. The portal ends in a speaking ring in Roland's world. During this crossing over, Susanna has sex with the demon of the speaking ring to keep it from attacking Eddie. Once this group is reunited, Jake and Roland's mental anguish ends. Roland has now completed the task of bringing companions into his world, which he started in the drawing of the three. Following the path of the beam again, the Kotet befriends an unusually intelligent Billy Bumbler, which looks like a combination of a badger raccoon and a dog with parrot-like speaking ability, with a long neck, curly tail, retractable claws, and a high degree of animal intelligence. Named Oi, who joins them on their quest. In a small, almost deserted town called River Crossing, Roland is given a silver cross and a courtly tribute by the town's last ancient citizen. The Kotet continues on the path of the beam to Ludd. Before arriving at Ludd, the Kotet hears the drum beat from the song Velcro Fly by ZZ Top playing from the city, although Eddie at first can't remember where it is he had heard these drums before. Later, the drums are revealed as war drums, which Ludd's citizens fight to. The ancient high-tech city has been ravaged by decades of war, and one of the surviving fighters, Gasher, kidnaps Jake by taking advantage of the near accident the team faced while crossing a decaying bridge that looks like the George Washington Bridge of New York City. Roland and Oi must then trace themselves through a man-made labyrinth in the city, and then into the sewers in order to rescue the boy from Gasher and his leader, the TikTok Man. Jake manages to shoot the TikTok Man, leaving him for dead. The Kotet is eventually reunited at the Cradle of Ludd, a train station which houses a monorail that the travelers use to escape Ludd before its final destination brought about by the monorail's artificial intelligence known as Blaine the Mono. The Ageless Stranger, an enemy whom the Man in Black warned Roland that he must slay, arrives to recruit the badly injured TikTok Man as his servant. Once aboard Blaine, a highly intelligent computerized train which is insane due to system degradation, it announces its intention to derail itself with them aboard unless they can defeat it in a riddle contest. The novel ends with Blaine and Roland's Kotet speeding through the wastelands, a radioactive land of mutated animals and ancient ruins created by something that is claimed to have been far worse than a nuclear war on the way at Topeka, the end of the line. Just a little note, uh, it says here, I'm going to read it again, the novel ends with Blaine and Roland's Kotet speeding through the wastelands, a radioactive land of mutated animals and ancient ruins created by something that is claimed to have been far worse than a nuclear war. 
I'm going to get to this later, but it I read it differently than that. I believe that they aren't going through a radioactive wasteland. I think that they're just traveling to another world, and that's what the world looks like. I think the wastelands is just another planet. That that was my interpretation. Anyway, going speaking of interpretations, it's now time for me to get into my analysis, which starts with book one, entitled Jake, Fear in a Handful of Dust. Chapter one, Bear and Bone. The first thing that strikes the reader is the title of this first book, Jake. Upon first reading, I had assumed that Jake's tale was over. First, left to die in the pages of the gunslinger, and then saved later in the pages of the drawing of the three, I thought for sure that his purpose had been fulfilled. Surely the death of Mort, which in turn would save Jake, was the redemptive act that would absolve Roland of his sins and allow for him to start fresh with this new family. Though Jake's return is teased in the final pages of the drawing of the three, that isn't clear upon first read, and it comes as a surprise that Jake, now alive again, would factor back into this tale. The book opens with Roland and Susanna, and it's clear that this is a much different gunslinger than we had known from the first two books. This Roland has begun to thaw, smiling, educating, displaying warmth rather than the cool detachment that grew from years of solitude and obsession. The sense of sharing yourself is symbolized by the fact that Susanna now wears one of Roland's guns. Though he can't use it anymore as a result of the lobstrosity's greedy claws from the last book, for an object that has been given so much importance, and one that is synonymous with its owner, the fact that it has been given to Susanna shows how much Roland has given himself over to his newly formed quartet. In the pages of The Gunslinger, the setting served as a magnification of the character's journey. When Roland was alone, the setting in which he walked was a desert. When he met Jake and grew to love him, the setting grew lush and lively. When Jake realized he'd be sacrificed to the tower, their journey grew arduous, rocky, and the depths of both Jake and Roland's spirits mirrored the bowels beneath the mountains through which they traveled. After sacrificing the boy, an act of death, Roland finds himself in a cavern filled with bones. You get the picture. Again here, King shows the growth of Roland through the setting. The deserted beach is replaced with a sprawling forest of green, of life, which symbolizes the growth of his newly formed quartet. We get a new version of Roland, one with a new purpose, a teacher. He becomes to Eddie and Susanna, and later Jake, what court had been to him. And the impatience that we had seen in Roland within the pages of the drawing of the three gives way to empathy and understanding. While he teaches Susanna to remember the face of her father, he himself demonstrates that he has not forgotten the face of the apprentice gunslingers with whom he had studied alongside, and he nurtures her evolving skills rather than commanding perfection the way you might have expected from an earlier incarnation of Roland. You'd think that a section devoted to teaching might be boring, but it's exactly the opposite. We see Roland summon Susanna's anger in order for her to live by the words of the gunslinger's creed. It's beyond mere teaching. It's as if they go into a sort of light focus catatonia together. And while Susanna learns to shoot with truth, King threads in the flight of crows overhead and the sound of snapping trees in the distance. So wrapped up in the lesson are they that they don't pay attention to these details. A decision that almost gets Eddie killed as Shardik, the robot bear, crashes into our story. 
This isn't just one of the series' most famous openings, it's one of its most famous scenes, period. Truth be told, Shardik, or Mur, or Mir, as he was known to the old people, is only in the story for just over 10 pages, but they're an incredible 10 pages, unlike anything that had come out of a King book before, and that includes the previous two installments. Part of the enduring quality of this scene is the two-page introduction to the pair, who isn't treated by King as a monster, but as a character with a backstory of his own. Part of this introduction connotes classic fairy tales um, of the fantasy stories of the monster in the forest, which places the opening in the realm of fantasy, but before we know it, we learn that this thing isn't just a giant bear, but a giant robot bear, which perfectly blends science fiction into it, creating a wonderful schizophrenic mashup of multiple genres whose combination creates for a new and fresh reading experience. We've seen the blend of sci-fi and fantasy before with the Dark Tower Saga, but not like this. This is insanity. We've come to expect wizards, magic doors, monsters, jukeboxes, but with Shardiks, it's basically King Kong striding out of Skull Island jungle. But even crazier, it's not just King Kong, but Mecha King Kong. No matter what you might have expected for this third entry, I guarantee you it wasn't this. The bear attacks Eddie who has picked up whittling as a hobby, and King provides rich insight into Eddie's day-by-day -day existence, the constant guilt and loathing manifested by the voice of his dead brother, Henry. Roland approaches the dead bear with wonder and reverence. As a character, Roland may be quick to kill, but he's incredibly nostalgic. The bear instantly reminds him of earlier times, of Elaine and Cuthbert and he pays respect to the bear partially because his friends would have wanted him to, but also because the bear deserved respect. Hello, stranger, he thought. Hello, old friend. I never believed in you, not really. I believe Elaine did, and I know that Cuthbert did. Cuthbert believed in everything, but I, I was the hard-headed one. I thought you were only a tale for children, another wind which blew around my old nurse's hollow head before finally escaping her jabbering mouth. But you were here all along, another refugee of the old times, like the pump at the way station and the old machines under the mountains. Are the slow mutants who worshipped those broken remnants the final descendants of the people who once lived in this forest and finally fled your wrath? I don't know. We'll never know. But it feels right. Yeah. And then I came with my friends, my deadly new friends, who are becoming so much like my deadly old friends. We came, weaving our magic circle around us and around everything we touch, strand by poisonous strand, and now here you lie at our feet. The world has moved on again, and this time, old friend, it's you who have been left behind. Now just because Shardik is dead, it doesn't mean they're safe from threat. The insanity within Roland that has been teased since the first few pages of this installment rushes to the forefront and we're given the central thrust of our novel, the time travel paradox. As we know, in the pages of The Gunslinger, Roland had met a boy named Jake, whom he had grown to love, a boy who had entered Roland's world after having been pushed in front of a car. Roland goes on to sacrifice Jake in the final pages of The Gunslinger in order to grow closer to the tower. 
Yet in the pages of The Drawing of the Three, Roland possesses the body of Jack Moore, the man who pushed Jake in the first place and causes him to commit suicide, which means that Mort will never have a chance to push Jake in front of a car, meaning that Jake never arrived to Roland's world. With the death of Mort, Roland saved Jake, but opened up his mind two conflicting sets of memories, one in which exists a boy and one in which the boy does not exist. At campfire that night, Roland tells the tale of the Guardians, and though it might be an info dump, it comes out organically, conversationally from the characters sprinkled with gems that enrich the mythology of this world. From the astrological origin of Old Star and Old Mother to the nursery rhyme of the turtle. You know the one. See the turtle of enormous girth, on his shell he holds the earth. What's also wonderful about this is the man who taught this rhyme to Roland was Hax the Cook, the same man who betrayed the gunslingers to John Farson. His betrayal is underscored here by the fond memories Roland has of him. Roland explains his warring memories to them. One mind, two memories, and recalls the speaking demon's words of advice to go slow past the drawers, which has dual meaning, much like the doubling of memories. One, it refers to the process of the drawing, which occurred in the second book, but also to the upcoming ride through the wastelands as the drawers are known in Roland's world. One mind, two memories, one word, two meanings. After Roland throws Walter's jawbone in the fire, Eddie sees the image of a key he'll later need to carve, and a rose, which is one of the most known images from the Dark Tower series. And that night, he has a dream in which the tower is presented to us in the most detail to date on pages 52 to 53. The field stretched on for miles, climbing a gentle slope of land, and standing at the horizon was the dark tower. It was a pillar of dumb stone rising so high into the sky that he could barely discern its tip. Its base, surrounded by red, shouting roses, was formidable, titanic with weight and size. Yet the tower became oddly graceful as it rose and tapered. The stone of which it had been made was not black, as he imagined it would be, but soot-colored. Narrow, slitted windows marched about it in a rising spiral. Below the windows ran an almost endless flight of stone stairs circling up and up. The tower was a dark gray exclamation point planted in the earth and rising above the field of blood-red roses. The sky arched above it was blue, but filled with puffy white clouds like sailing ships. They flowed above and around the top of the dark tower in an endless stream. How gorgeous it is, Eddie marveled. How gorgeous and strange. But his feeling of joy and triumph had departed. He was left with a sense of deep malaise and impending doom. He looked about him and realized with a sudden horror that he was standing in the shadow of the tower. No, not just standing in it, buried alive in it. I am going to talk specifically about the Field of Roses in a bonus episode that explores the larger connection to the Dark Tower series that will be published at the same time of this episode. Roland finished the tale of the time travel paradox, which presents his larger concern, not for himself, but for Jake. If Roland is going this crazy, then how must it feel for Jake, who is alive in one world, but has memories of dying in another? King continues to build the mythology of the novel, with the explanation of the beams and their relationship to the tower. 
Interesting to note is the fact that as far as Roland knows, the beams are not natural, but were built by the Great Old Ones. Their purpose is unclear, to support the tower I suppose, but as to who built the tower, that's a mystery to be explained some later day. King also explains what the phrase the world has moved on means. It's something that has been referenced as far back in the gunslinger, and partially it means that civilization, civilization has fallen away, but it also means that reality is falling away, and with it, the basic laws of science. For instance, and here's just a crazy aspect of this book, Roland's world is growing. As they approach the starting point of the beam, Eddie recalls a location of his youth that will go on to play an incredibly important role later in this novel location whose implications reveal a broader framework for the beginning of King's shared universe, which I will discuss in the bonus episode. Also, with this haunted house, it gives King a chance to plunge into, even if momentarily, the genre that made him famous. On page 74 to 75, he writes, As Eddie approached the metal box with its alternating diagonal slashes of yellow and black, a strong and unpleasant memory seized him. For the first time in years, he found himself thinking of a crumbling Victorian wreck in Dutch Hill, about a mile away from the neighborhood he and Henry had grown up. The wreck, which was known as the mansion to the neighborhood kids, occupied a plot of weedy, untended lawn on Reinhold Street. Eddie guessed that practically all the kids in the borough had heard spooky stories about the mansion. The house stood slumped beneath its steep roofs, seeming to stare, sorry, seeming to glare at passerbys from the deep shadows thrown by its eaves. The windows were gone, of course. Kids can throw rocks through the windows without getting too close to a place, but had not been spray painted and had not become a makeout spot or a shooting gallery. Oddest of all was the simple fact of its continued existence. No one had set it on fire to collect the insurance or just to see it burn. The kids said it was haunted, of course, and as Eddie stood on the sidewalk with Henry one day looking at it, it had seemed that it really might be haunted. Hadn't he felt some strong and unfriendly force seeping from that old Victorian's shadowy, shadowy windows, windows that seemed to look at him with the fixed stare of a dangerous lunatic? Hadn't he felt some subtle wind stirring the hairs on his arms and the back of his neck? Hadn't he had the clear intuition that if he stepped inside that place, the door would slam and lock behind him and the walls would begin to close in, grinding the bones of dead mice to powder, wanting to crush his bones the same way? Haunting. Haunted. Chapter 2. Key and Rose. And then, ladies and gentlemen, nine years, nine years after we last saw him plunge to his death beneath the mountains in another world, we are reintroduced to Jake Chambers. Like I said earlier, this was a shock to me when I first picked up the Wastelands. I had thought that Jake's role had played itself out. I didn't even think that with time travel and dimension hopping that he would return. I was surprised, and needless to say... It was a pleasant surprise. He returns to us with a wonderful simile on page 89. For three weeks, John Jake Chambers fought bravely against the madness rising inside him. During that time, he felt like the last man aboard a foundering ocean liner 
working the bilge pumps for dear life, trying to keep the ship afloat until the storm ended, the skies cleared, and help could arrive, help from somewhere, help from anywhere. On May 31st, 1977, four days before school ended for the summer, he finally faced up to the fact that no help was going to come. It was time to give up, time to let the storm carry him away. The thing that's so great about Jake's story is that it could have been its own story. King very easily could have taken the big story beats from this character and spun them into an original novel that I would then review and say that it was inspired by the journey of Jake Chambers and serves as a spiritual sequel or spin-off to The Dark Tower. I mean, just look at the boy's dilemma as he thinks to himself on page 93. Something is on my mind. One hell of a nasty little factoid. I died, you see, and I went into another world, and then I died again. You're going to say that stuff like that doesn't happen, and of course you're right, and part of my mind knows you're right, but most of my mind knows that you're wrong. It did happen. I did die. Yeah, he could have had an entire novel to himself, these ideas repurposed into an original tale, but the fact is, is that it's included here, and it makes The Wastelands an even stronger novel than it already is. When we left off with Roland, the gunslinger expressed more concern for Jake than for himself, and here we see why. At least Roland understood what was happening to him, and had a new family to support him through it. Jake, on the other hand, despite being in the more familiar world of New York, is utterly alone in an alien landscape. The heightened insanity is augmented by the ultra-clear focus of the elements of a fantasy novel as in the case of the lure of the doorway, like when he sees a cloakroom closet and is drawn to it. Though much of Jake is drawn to his mysterious past, Ka warns him of the future, specifically of Blaine. This is now at least the second time King has foreshadowed the deadly means of public transportation, the first being through Eddie's eyes. Jake includes an Amtrak train in his final essay, and King follows it up with the teacher explaining that a good novel is like a series of riddles within riddles which will mean life or death in the final pages of this novel. It is within Jake's deterioration that we are first given the name of our novel's villain, Blaine the Mono. Jake skips school, and because Jake was my age at the time of publication, this was such a wonderful moment. Reading it made me feel like I was Jake, escaping into the book as he himself escaped from the confines of school. We're granted a scene on page uh, 102 to 106 that, well, I guess you could say, I think the creators of the Final Destination movies have a lot to thank Stephen King for. As Jake plays hooky, King again proves that his strength is in, I'm sorry, that his strength in settings is not limited to small towns. In previous novels, he had placed us inside fully realized cities that came to life due to his descriptions. And, of course, there are descriptions not limited to cities, but he just knocks this out of the park. Um, I'm talking about how he writes about spring and summer on page 110. After walking for a while, he began to come out of this unhappy daze and take some notice of his surroundings. He was standing on the corner of Lexington Avenue and 54th Street with no memory of at all how he had come to be there. He noticed for the first time that it was an absolutely gorgeous morning. May 9th, the day this madness had started, had been pretty, but today was ten times better. 
that day perhaps when spring looks around herself and sees summer standing nearby strong and handsome and with a cocky grin on his tanned face the sun shone brightly off the glass walls of the midtown buildings the shadow of each pedestrian was black and crisp the sky overhead was a clear and blameless blue dotted here and there with plump foul weather clouds jake then enters the manhattan restaurant of the mind meets two characters that'll play a larger role in the series. During this time, journeying through the city, he senses the coming of the white, which, again, I keep I feel bad that I keep saying this, but I will discuss that later in a bonus episode. But basically what happens here is the multiverse starts providing for Jake, and Ka pushes him towards two players in the game that'll serve as allies to his Ka Tet, Calvin Tower and Aaron Deepno. When Jake heads towards where he believes he'll find the doorway to the next world, he finds a vacant lot that is owned by the Sombra Corporation, which is the first time we're introduced to this evil organization that serves the Crimson King. Crimson King is a character that is not even referenced in here, but whose shadow hangs over the entire Dark Tower series. It's in this vacant lot that Jake discovers the Rose. It's the second time in this book that we've seen roses the first being the image of the field of roses but rather than a black tower surrounded by a field of red we have a single rose surrounded by towers this rose will later be revisited and will have to be saved because as you know the stephen king universe is one full of twinners we saw the twinners extensively in the pages of the talisman and even in the pages of this series with eddie and cuthbert and even now with this rose which is also the tower itself now, I'll speak more about this twinning and the contradiction in the bonus episode. When Jake returns home, he reads the story of Charlie the Choo Choo, which he bought from Calvin Tower. King continues to lay the track upon which Blaine will later run. Chapter 3, Dora and Demon. Here we are presented with another scene between Roland and Eddie in which one of them was sick. Roland's illness is ramping up and Eddie is there to ease him through it. Considering that they met while Eddie was going through withdrawals and Roland was dying from infection, it shows the trust between these two characters. It's during this chapter that the Katet enters Midworld. Now, I know that I've referenced Midworld before, which I really shouldn't have because they don't actually make it to Midworld until now. Everything before was an in-world. Now, later we'll explore end-world, but I think for most of us, when we refer to Roland's world, we just call it Midworld. Probably because here in the Wastelands was the first time the world was called anything. Again, it's just another example of how King is fleshing out this world's history and mythology with these flourishes. Just like the City of Lud, first seen here in the distance. This is an old relic to Roland's world, but a new concept to us. Again, we've been mostly limited to sprawling, desolate settings and an ancient futuristic twin version of New York rotting on the edge of a vast plain that includes Stonehenge. It's basically an incredible feast for the mind's eye. On the edge of the forest with the ghostly image of the city in the distance, New York City boy Eddie Dean takes one more step away from his past and one more towards his future as a gunslinger as he speaks the gunslinger's act of contrition and gives himself over to both Roland's teaching and the ancient culture of the gunslingers. Meanwhile, as the Kotet makes their way to the speaking ring, Jake makes his way to the mansion on Dutch Hill and through the magic of time travel, discovers young Eddie and Henry. Simultaneously, 
a lifetime and another dimension away. Eddie prepared to enter the speaking ring, and Roland and Susanna prepared to have sex with its demon so that it won't get Eddie. If this sounds ridiculous, it is ridiculous. But whether it's good ridiculous or bad ridiculous is completely up to you, and I'm going to talk about this a little bit more in the character section of this episode. Now, however you feel about this scene, you can't argue that everything around it is thrilling. Jake's near death at the hands and mouth of the living mansion is terrifying, and his rescue by Roland is something that I just, I need to see come alive in a movie. It is an incredibly moving scene, with Eddie and Susanna yanking them back into Midworld. It's interesting that it's the Ka-Tet that is the force that's drawing, and not the gunslinger who is at the mercy of his family. And the reunion, guys, the reunion between the boy and the gunslinger is an absolute tearjerker that comes on the page 213. Are your voices gone? Roland nodded. All gone. Yours? Gone. I'm all together again. We both are. They looked at the same instant with the same impulse. As Roland swept Jake into his arms, the boy's unnatural self-possession broke and he began to cry. It was the exhausted, relief-weeping of a child who has been long lost, suffered much, and is finally safe again. As Roland's arms closed about his waist, Jake's own arms slipped about the gunslinger's neck and gripped like hoops of steel. I'll never leave you again, Roland said, and now his own tears came. I swear to you on the names of all of my fathers, I'll never leave you again. Okay, book two. Lud, A Heap of Broken Images, Chapter 4, Town and Cotet. Immediately, like seriously, immediately after we see Jake pulled into this world, the Cotet now is fully formed with the arrival of Oi, the Billy Bumbler. Now I'm gonna, here I go again, here I go again. I'm gonna discuss Oi in more detail in the bonus episode. But seriously, guys, okay, how can you not want your own Oi? I mean, this was genius of King to create a furry sidekick. It's just one more thing to draw us into this world. And the fact that he isn't a dog or a creature from our world just makes the adventures in Midworld that much stranger. Soon after, the Cotet arrives in town where they are met by Aunt Talitha, who celebrates the gunslingers and with them the coming of the white, Stephen King's universal, multiversal source of good. Through these interactions, we experienced how gunslingers had been seen by the people before the world had moved on. Beloved, respected, and in this dark time nearly worshipped, the interaction allows Roland to reveal the gunslinger as a dignitary rather than a merciless gunfighter. So at this point here, Susanna is looking on. On page 249, we see this through Susanna's eyes. He's a living remnant of a past they only know from stories, Susanna thought. They look at him the way religious people would look up to one of the saints, Peter or Paul or Matthew. If you decide to drop the Saturday night bean supper and tell them stories of how it was traipsing around the Sea of Galilee with Jesus the Carpenter. After they leave Rivers Crossing, Roland decides it's time to get everyone on the same page, and that includes the reader. Until now, both Roland and King have dropped references to Ka, but here, the gunslinger specifically discusses Ka Tet on page 259. 
We are Ka-Tek, Roland began, which means a group of people bound together by fate. The philosophers of my land said a Ka-Tek could only be broken by death or treachery. My great teacher Court said that since death and treachery are also spokes on the wheel of Ka, such a binding can never be broken. As the years pass and I see more, I come more and more to Court's way of looking at it. Each member of a Ka-Tet is like a piece in a puzzle. Taken by itself, each piece is a mystery, but when they are put together, they make a picture or part of a picture. It may take many great Ka-Tets to finish one picture. You mustn't be surprised if you discover your lives have been touching in many ways you haven't seen until now. For one thing, each of you three is capable of knowing each other's thoughts. This definition of Ka-Tet speaks to Stephen King, one of Stephen King-isms of community and how it takes a community to fully combat whatever obstacle is there. It's just a great message that King weaves into his books time and time and time again. It's during this scene when our characters share each other's stories in full to each other and in doing so, realize that their path must take them to Blaine the Mono, known in Earth as Charlie the Choo Choo. From the repeated references to Blaine throughout the novel and the horrifying children's book with Charlie, this becomes a dread-filled conflict. Chapter 5, Bridge and City Here we learn a bit of Roland's youth and the priorities of learning that came from his studies, specifically around the art of riddling. Not only do we get a piece of Roland's past, but also the conflict that will arise at the very end, and I mean very end of this book, the nature of riddles. Roland states that the ability to solve a riddle is evidence of a sane and rational mind, while Eddie dismisses them on nonsense, a form of joking that he excels in. As the court jester of the group, it's no surprise he feels strongly about this, and that the central argument is manifested through the conflict between Blaine and Eddie, Blaine believing in the sanctity of riddles, and Eddie on a quest to tear down that sanctity, believing a good joke can be made from any subject matter. Eddie's belief is that jokes are supposed to make you think around corners, as, and as Roland states, which refers to the ability to infer and analyze. Soon they cross the bridge, a scene I am never, ever comfortable rereading. King is just too vivid in how he paints the vulnerability of Oi, and his desperate, frightened cries as he tries to cross the bridge. Oi's fall is stopped by, Joy's, by Jake's quick thinking, and we should stop there and think about this and what happens next. Bridges in this series are never a good omen. When we last encountered a bridge, Roland let Jake fall from it. So it really shouldn't come as a surprise that Jake is willing to sacrifice himself to save the loved one from the exact same death. More importantly, Jake's original fall symbolized Roland's selfishness and self-isolation. Here, the rescue of Oi and Jake is a complete team effort. Each character works together to save the other members of their cocktail, and in doing so, help absolve Roland of some of his sins. Jake and Oi are saved just in time for Gasher, the city pirate of the TikTok man, to abduct Jake and splinter the cocktail. Here are some moments of truth. Will Roland follow through with the promise he made to Jake? Will Eddie and Susanna pass this test that proves their worth as gunslingers? In regards to Gasher, he's the what if for Jake. What if when Jake had originally found himself in Midworld, or more correctly, in Inworld, he wasn't discovered by the gunslinger, 
but by someone more in line with Gasher's sensibilities. After all, both men are riffs on classic archetypes. Roland and Oi make their way through the trash-constructed maze while Susanna takes her first true step as a gunslinger by killing an oncoming attacker. Trusting her senses, she eliminates the threat which had at first appeared to be a child, but had in fact been a sickly dwarf ready to lob a grenade at them. Lud, by the way, is so much fun to read. Between the junk maze, the fact that Gasher is a legit pirate, the futuristic ruin of the city itself, the killing drums blaring ZZ Top, and the madness of its denizens, it makes me want to see what George Miller could do with this. If you haven't seen Mad Max Fury Road, you're doing yourself a disservice. Go see it now and the previous Mad Max movies, and you'll see how perfect he'd be for this. And chances are, I mean, this this novel and the depiction of Lud might in turn be inspired by the works of George Miller, who had been working with Mad Max for, for over 10 years by the time King had sat down to, to write this. So this could be very much inspired by that those those imagery i'm sorry that imagery and 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 these these types of cobbled together pieces of of ruin that have been left over in this post-apocalyptic society it very very well could be the case but regardless the sensibilities of what george miller have done and what stephen king have done here make for a perfect blend i would love to see the 70 plus year old george miller tackle this when Susanna and Eddie arrive at the cradle, we are introduced, I believe for the first time, Arthur Eld, Roland's descendant. The statue of Arthur stands over the station, above the guardians themselves. Again, this is King adding layers and layers onto this mythology. With every page, we get closer and closer to the moment where we meet Blaine. King heaps more and more attention onto the page until it's almost unbearable to keep reading. While Eddie and Susanna face down the threat of Blaine, Jake faces down the threat of the TikTok man, whose speed, Jake notes, might even surpass Roland's own. It's a quick comment, but it's all the reader needs to envision and anticipate a showdown between the two characters. In some ways, the TikTok man is a foil to Roland. Both seek out the boy, the TikTok man with his silo, Roland with his tower, both men descended from legends, TikTok is the descendant of David Quick and Roland of Arthur Eld. Roland is the last remainder of a time gone by, order in the face of chaos. And with TikTok, he's defined by his watch, which could provide order, but is merely a symptom now of the chaos. The scene with Tiki grows with tension, with Jake using his wiles to put the greys against each other. Oi jumps in for the heroic save, destroying TikTok man's face, but the reader is convinced that Oi will die in the process. The end is insane and suspenseful and triumphant with Jake taking Maris into his own hands and shooting TikTok man with the machine gun to save Oi's life. And just when he thinks he's safe, Gasher gets a hold of him. But then he's saved by Roland, who has the best badass exchange with Gasher. Roland busts into the room. Gasher turns. Gasher looks at him. He says, you, me, says Roland. And then Roland blows him away. There's a wonderful reunion between Roland and Jake, and between Jake and Oi, and all the while, sirens blare throughout the city, telling the reader that the threat of the TikTok man may have been ceased, but the real danger is just beginning. And to confirm this, Blaine speaks, confronting Roland. 
The quartet then has a warm reunion amid the chaos, and the tension grows even deeper as Blaine announces he's going to gas the city in 12 minutes. Guys, and then it happens. The equivalent of Samuel Jackson strolling out of the darkness at the end of Iron Man. It's one of my favorite Stephen King scenes for its comic book cool, for its fanboy satisfaction. It's the confirmation of previously held suspicion and sets up possibilities that make the wait between books excruciating. When I first read The Wastelands, I had not read The Stand, but during my second read of The Wastelands, I had. So when I got to this scene, I completely understood what was occurring and I freaked out. If you don't know what I'm talking about, this is when the Dark Man himself shows up or returns to as later revealed to the pages of the Dark Tower series. The man who calls himself Richard Fannin, who we knew in the stand as Randall Flagg, strolls into this world and completely steals the show. This scene confirms that he is the ageless stranger and Merlin, two characters that Walter had spoken of in the final pages of The Gunslinger, something that i have addressed as a continuity error in multiple episodes at this point so if you want to hear me address those thoughts my evolving thoughts you can start with the bonus edition of the gunslinger the bonus edition of eyes of the dragon and there might be another one at this oh and the stand of course i'm sorry the the bonus edition of the stand uh for for my evolving thoughts on how randall flag fits into the larger work of, of the Stephen King universe. Chapter 6, Riddle and Wastelands. Here, things get weird. The content enters Blaine to reveal not just a train, but a futuristic compartment that can make its walls and floor transparent, revealing the titular Wastelands. And it really says something that after the intense shootout with the TikTok man, that a conversation with a computer is not just a climax, but it's more thrilling. First, we get teases of the Dark Tower with the name of an instrument that's supposedly played on the higher levels of the tower. The fact that Blaine's N-World transmission ended 800 years ago and can't report on the status of the tower that he'd heard rumors of a gunslinger, though he refuses to explain what those rumors are or who was the one spreading them, though with the arrival of Flag in the previous chapter, it's not hard to imagine that Flag has kept Blaine company over the years and perhaps even contributed to his madness. Furthermore, King strongly insinuates that the wastelands aren't the result of radioactive mutation, but are a different world altogether, like I had said at the top of this episode at the end of the Wikipedia summary. Knowing that Blaine makes stops through different dimensions, this is not outside the realm of possibility. And then after he explains that he's going to commit suicide and take the quartet with them, he demands a riddle, which allows Roland to again demonstrate how badass he is by sitting still and simply refusing. Roland of Gilead unfolded his hands and got slowly to his feet. He stood on what appeared to be nothing, legs apart, his right hand on his hip and his left hand on the sandalwood grip of his revolver. He stood as he had stood so many times before, in the dusty streets of a hundred forgotten towns, in a score of rock-lined canyon-killing zones, in unnumbered dark saloons with their smells of bitter beer and old fried meals, 
It was just another showdown in another empty street. That was all, and that was enough. It was Kef, Ka, and Ka Tet. That the showdown always came was the central fact of his life and the axle upon which his own Ka revolved. That the battle would be fought with words instead of bullets this time made no difference. It would be a battle to the death, just the same. The stench of killing in the air was as clear and definite as the stench of exploded carrion in a swamp. Then the battle rage descended as it always did, and he was no longer really there to himself at all. After taunting Blaine, and it's awesome, he just goes off on Blaine, completely demolishing him verbally. After taunting Blaine, Blaine threatens to kill Roland, to which Roland verbally smacks him across the page. I'm sorry, across the face on page 415. It's awesome. Uh so he says, Blaine says, I command you to stop it or I'll kill you all I'll kill you all right here. Roland's eyes blazed with such wild blue fire that Eddie shrank away from him. Dimly, he heard Jake and Susanna gasp. Kill if you will, but command me nothing, the gunslinger roared. You have forgotten the faces of those who made you. Now either kill us or be silent and listen to me. Roland of Gilead, son of Stephen, gunslinger and lord of the ancient lands. I have not come across all the miles and all the years to listen to your childish prating. Do you understand me? Now you will listen to me. Awesome. Roland lays it on the line. He tells the tale of his youth of the riddling competitions and the prize that will go to the winner. He then makes a deal with Blaine. If Blaine cannot answer one of their riddles by the time they make it to Topeka, Blaine will let them live. The train speeds faster and faster, but not as fast as our beating hearts, and just when we can't take it anymore, King realizes that Blaine is racing faster than the pages allowed within the book and provides the literary equivalent to a smash cut to black with the declaration from Blaine. So, cried the voice of Blaine, cast your nets, wanderers, try me with your questions, and let the contest begin. Boom. The end. It is one of King's most memorable endings because it's one of his only cliffhangers. He'll incorporate cliffhangers into Wolves of the Kala and Song of Susanna, but not like this. When Wolves and Susanna came out, the reader knew the publishing dates for the end of the series. Now here, we were riding along with the Cotet, unsure of how this journey would end. And it was, oh my god, it was so amazing. So amazing. Great ending. Great book through and through. Only one complaint, really, that I'm going to get to in a little bit. But, you know, this is why, this is why this book really holds up. It's... The, the edition that I, I reread this time around uh, was the, the, the plume edition with the, the, the full color illustrations. And it's only, you know, 400 something pages and it just zooms along. It's great. It's just fantastic. Just a fantastic read. And while I am on the, the topic of the, the illustrations, the black and white illustrations are not going to get as much attention as the full-color page large uh, paintings. I, I personally like the black and white uh, pictures uh, a little bit better than the, the illustrations. And in an earlier episode of one of the, the podcast reviews, I, some, I, for whatever reason, mentioned the, the, the Wasteland illustrations. And I was just upset that 
so many of the illustrations are dedicated to the wastelands themselves, which barely take up any time on the uh, in the book. I mean, I understand that the book is called The Wastelands, but I don't think that we need... We have one, we have two, we have three. I mean, we have three illustrations. I mean, and these are these are double double page spreads of of, of illustrations for the wastelands. And I, I just don't think that that's necessary. They're well done, but I don't think that they're they're necessary. I mean, we get Gasher, we get Roland shooting a gun. We have um, the the doorway scene when when Jake tries to get through. We have um, we have Jake. Uh, encountering the rose in the empty lot. We have Eddie standing in the field of roses. Uh, and we have uh, Susanna standing on the, the, the shoulders of Roland. And we have just the, the image of Shardik trying to go after Eddie. But the, the picture that I think... I'm just so glad that this artist captured in this novel it's a two-page spread it turns actually it's not just an illustration but it turns the wastelands into charlie the choo-choo it is the, just the wonderful recreation of the image of charlie the choo-choo and we get to see the experience of what this must look like where we have the smiling charlie the choo-choo and the kids who look more like they are screaming than crying because they're trapped on this evil train it's awesome. I'm so glad that that is one of the, the interpretations for the illustrations in this novel. So guys, uh, before I get to the Stephen Kingisms and the Easter eggs, I want to talk a little bit about some of the, the larger themes that, that pop up here in the novel. And the first is insanity. I mean, this novel is one completely about insanity. And it makes sense because we learn of the beams in the novel, the beams that are breaking and are tearing apart the fundamental truths of the universe. With stability gone, instability takes over. And what is insanity but the instability of our minds? First, the depiction of this world is the strangest that we've seen yet. It's a world almost cobbled together from different worlds, a puzzle piece made up of pieces from other jigsaw puzzles. The bear Shardik is insane. Blaine is insane. The fact that we have not what but not one but two insane robots is insane. Roland's going insane from the time travel paradox. The TikTok man is insane. You know, everybody's crazy. And it's just it just reinforces the just the the sheer lunacy of what's occurring on a molecular level within uh, the pages of this novel. Okay, now I want to talk about uh, the characters here. First of all, we're going to go with Roland, right? I mean, why not? He is our he is our main character. Now, King has always stated that finding his way back to these books was always difficult for him, which might be the case, but despite this, I still feel as though Roland is his most defined character out of any book that he has ever written. The characterization of the gunslinger is threaded throughout the series. A throwaway line here, a descriptive paragraph there, whether it's Susanna stating that he's the most literal man she's ever met or the following paragraph um, on page 18. He had never been a man who understood himself deeply or cared to. The concept of self-consciousness, let alone self-analysis, was alien to him. His way was to act, to quickly consult his own interior, utterly mysterious workings, and then act. Of them all, he had been the most perfectly made, a man whose deeply romantic core was encased in a brutal, simple box which consisted of instinct and pragmatism. 
He took one of those quick looks inside now and decided to tell her everything. There was something wrong with him. Oh yes. Yes indeed. Something wrong with his mind, something as simple as his nature and as strange as the weird, wandering life into which that nature had impelled him. When we first met him in the first book, he functioned as a Clint Eastwood stand-in. With the desert setting, the cowboy motif, the silent stranger aspect, it's the man with no name in a Stephen King book. But along the way, King realized there was more to it. And as the character continued to hunt a dark magician, and especially when he met Jake, the gunslinger evolved from a Clint Eastwood analog to Roland Deschain, his own character. The character evolved through the drawing of the three. We saw his vulnerability and his thirst for kinship that came unexpectedly and showed us that he was more than just a killer but a tragic figure who was at the mercy of his own obsessions. In the beginning of the Wastelands, with his quartet nearly formed, Roland's edges soften just the slightest so we see the depths to his personality, including humor and the fact that he thrives when he's around others. It's almost hard to reconcile what we get here because, at least for me, he's clearly defined by his lonesome self as depicted in The Gunslinger. The fact that he slips so easily into this family role is jarring at first. And our perception of him continues to grow through the eyes of the other characters, as in the case with Susanna on page 258. Now she understood that Roland had once been much more than a cop riding a Dali-esque range at the end of the world. He had been a diplomat, a mediator, perhaps even a teacher. Most of all, he had been a soldier of what these people called the White, by which she guessed they meant the civilizing forces that kept people from killing each other through the time, enough of the time to allow some sort of progress. In his time, he had been more wandering knight-errant than bounty hunter, and in many ways, this was still his time. The people of River Crossing had certainly thought so. Why else would they have knelt in the dust to receive his blessing? And now I want to talk a little bit about Eddie. Um, but really, not really. Uh, <laughs> I mean, Eddie serves as the our eyes and ears through this journey. Um, and though he plays a significant role in, in the sense that he has to pull Jake through this world with the, the key... Uh, Eddie, he doesn't really factor too much into the plot from that point forward. You know, I mean, we just get to see his continued growth. I think that, if anything, The Drawing of the Three was more Eddie's book. Um, we just get to see more of Susanna be Susanna here um, as a, a strange combination between Detta and Odetta. So, speaking of Susanna, let's, let's talk here about Susanna because there's some stuff that we have to talk about. So... It's, I don't know. Okay, look, here's the deal, all right? Stephen King has been accused of racism. Not by me, not by me. I just want to put it out there. But, um, and, and what it, with this is that it's not necessarily that he's racist or that he looks unfavorably upon people of different skin color than his own. I mean, the arguments come from his characterization of certain characters. Now, I had recently read a review of The Stand. I don't remember where. I don't remember, I don't remember where it was, um... And it's stated that his depiction of Mother Abigail, though incredibly positive, is loaded with so many folksy, stereotypical African-American spiritual attributes that the portrayal is in of itself racist. 
If that's the case, you would then have to extend the same argument to Susanna, who at times speaks with such an absurd, never authentic feeling of like jive talk that just makes me cringe. So is that racist? I don't know. Like I've said before on earlier Stephen King pot or Stephen King cast review episodes, I don't really know how to talk about how Stephen King writes black characters um, or when he drops the n-word to denote the fact that we're not supposed to like a certain character but I do know with Susanna when she opens her mouth to speak it doesn't feel like it doesn't feel like a character it feels like a caricature but everything else about Susanna her insights her her views the way that she interacts with the characters it all feels on point it's only that that dialogue piece And here in this book, Susanna, she has sex with a demon and she winds up becoming pregnant. And it's just weird. And I don't know how to feel about it. I, it it's, it's pretty graphic. Um, I don't know if it needs to be as graphic as it is. And it is going to function as a plot point that will be later used questionably. You know, that will be up to the reader whether it's successful or not in the later Dark Tower books that I will definitely get to in later episodes. Now I want to talk about Jake. As you already know by now, I could not be happier that Jake is included in this novel. King might be reintroducing us to Jake Chambers, but in a way, Jake is grabbing the baton from the talisman's Jack Sawyer. When we met Jake... He was a boy thrust into a nightmarish imaginative dreamscape, and the plot hinged on the father-son relationship. Though Jake was an essential character, he existed in service of Roland, and thusly always remained a boy. Soon after, Jack Sawyer had a similar adventure traveling across worlds, but he remained the star of his story, unlike Jake who functioned as a supporting player in another's. The purpose of the talisman is to chronicle the boy's journey into adulthood, which is why the next time we see Jack in the pages of Black House, he's an adult. In between those two books, we have Jake Chambers, who has outgrown his childhood. Scratch that. Outgrown his childhood by the time we meet him in the pages of the Wastelands. He's rebelling against the concept of his parents, forming his own identity, and dealing with the consequences of a reality that the so-called parents in his life will never understand. TikTok Man. Uh, the TikTok Man is foreshadowed as early as page 172 when the Katets see the city of Lud in the far distance, and Eddie hopes for a council of elders to rescue him. The concept of a council of elders is juxtaposed against the actuality of Andrew Quick and only serves to highlight the horror of he. Blaine the Mono. I think you'd be hard-pressed to find better, a better built-up character than Blaine the Mono. He's referenced almost right away between the dreams and the horrifying representation of Charlie the Choo Choo. Blaine's legend grows throughout the course of the novel in a manner I don't recall seeing in any of King's other works. In some ways, Blaine is as memorable as he is because he's the personification of what makes this series work. King constantly reimagines and warps pre-existing fantasy archetypes and constructs. King is a card-carrying member of the J.R.L. Tolkien fan club, and Blaine functions as a revision of the Smaug analog, sorry, Smog. I'm going to call him Smog the way I always called him Smog, and not Smaug the way that 
Peter Jackson makes everyone refer to him. So anyway, Blaine functions as a revision of the smog analog in the sense that he's the dangerous beast the heroes must awaken in order to continue on their journey. But more notably, he's Gollum reincarnated. Just as Bilbo had to outwit Gollum through riddling, so must our heroes do the same, except King turns it on its head in the sense that Eddie, sorry, that Eddie ultimately rewrites the rules of the long-established game, which won't take place in this novel. It will take place in Wizarding Glass. All right, everyone, now it's time for our Stephen King-isms, which are tricks and traits and tropes that you'll see from one Stephen King book to the next. The first is the prophetic dream. Within the first 50 pages, Eddie has your typical prophetic dream, this time with callbacks to the drawing of the three and a look ahead to the arrival of Blaine the Mono. Number two is the evil house, as seen in Salem's Lot, the shining it, the talisman here uh, later on in the black house. Um, and I'll get to this house a little bit more in a bit. Number three is the safety of a bookstore. Here we have the Manhattan Restaurant of the Mind before we have the library in it. Number four is dreams becoming reality. In Pet Cemetery, Lewis, um, Lewis had a dream in which Victor Pascal guides him through the forest at night. And when he awakens, he realizes it's just been a dream until he sees that his feet are caked in dried mud. Similarly, Eddie dreams of young Eddie and scrapes his knee, an injury which he discovers when he wakes up. Number five is danger on a bridge. Uh, here, it's crossing to Ludd before we saw the boys in the body trying to escape the train. Number six is the unpredictable rage of the villain. Uh, TikTok man flashes between being very charming and being just this rage-fueled monster, which we've seen before with Randall Flagg and Leland Gaunt. Number seven is Oz the Great and Terrible. It was the name of death in Pet Cemetery, and at one point, Jake considers Blaine to be Oz the Great and Terrible. And number eight, like I said, is the J.R.R. Tolkien influences, the riddling, the awakening of the dragon, um, seen in many of his books, especially The Stand. All right, now it's time for Easter eggs, which are little uh, just cameos and references to other Stephen King works. First of which is hypnosis through dancing Sorry, hypnosis through dancing a bullet across your knuckles. This is a trick that Roland can use when he needs it, taught to him by Martin as a boy. Martin, as we know, is really Randall Flagg, who in the pages of The Stand uses this very same trick upon Lloyd, except with a stone. Number two. Um, during his dream of the tower, Eddie sees a great black cloud pour out from its windows and race across the field towards him. You know, what is this supposed to reference? The Crimson King? A character yet unnamed? Uh, or is it, you know, uh, just Roland himself? You know, the, 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 the curse of Roland's obsession manifested, you know, as this black cloud in the tower. I don't, I don't know. Number three is Oz. Um, Eddie talks to Roland about Oz, which will play a much more significant role in The Wizarding Glass when they arrive at Emerald City. Number four, number four is elf wallpaper. The mansion at Dutch Hill has the same decorator as the similarly evil house on Nybolt Street from the pages of It. Uh, so similar, I'm going to discuss this in greater depth in my bonus episode. Number five is new colors and dimensional traveling. 
In the Langoliers, the warm hole through which the plane flew was characterized by swirling colors that had never been seen before. When Eddie stands before the dimensional doorway in the clearing of Shardik, he imagines he sees a strange color, sorry, strange colors in his mind. Number six is the coming of the white. When Jake is going about his day skipping school, his mind is granted a reprieve, and he says aloud, It's the white! It's the coming of the white! Which is exactly the same thing that Alan Pangborn stated in the conclusion of The Needful Things, and maybe it was stated almost exactly in the page of the Talisman as well. Number seven is Aaron Deepnow, or Deepno. This character shares the same last name of a major character in Insomnia, and I will explore this relationship in more detail in my bonus episode. Number eight is Garlin. The land of Garlin is referenced here, first mentioned in Eyes of the Dragon. Number nine is the fact that Randall Flagg shows up in the pages of this book. Number ten is the fact that Randall Flagg has the character of the TikTok man say, My life for you, which is what he had uh, the trash can man say to him. And number eleven is a connection to Rose Matter, in which the town, sorry, the city of Lud is, is referenced again. All right, everyone, that is all I've got for now for this. But like I said, I, I still have a bonus episode left that is published on the same day. So if you have read you know, all of the Dark Tower books and you, you want a more thorough, in-depth analysis, then head on over to the bonus episode. And everyone, if you have not done so already, like I said earlier at the beginning of this episode... If you have not subscribed to iTunes, please go out and do so. Please write a review. And if at any point you have a question, uh, feel free to, to, to write to Stephen Kingcast at yahoo.com. Follow me on Twitter, on Instagram, on Tumblr, on Facebook, all Stephen Kingcast. And make sure that you stick around next week as uh, I, I launch into the next phase of Stephen King's career, and that is the female as protagonist. And we'll kick it off with Gerald's game. So everyone have a great week, and I will see you here next week. Same King time, same King channel, Stephen King back.